0: All right. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, so you'll go to the Gospels and go right past Acts and you'll get to Romans. If you get to all those little letters, you've gone too far. And we will be in Romans chapter 1. Okay, I'm going to read verses 14 through 17, and then we will go ahead and dive in. So, Romans 1, verses 14 through 17, as always, listen attentively, as this is God's word. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, as always we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people once again. We have come to your word. We find ourselves in a passage that most of us have read before, and so we consider it old news. So we thank you for the Apostle Paul and this extraordinary word you gave him to preach to this new church facing persecution. Give us hearts and minds to believe and understand all that you have written about the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. And then to put the gospel into practice in our daily life. Help us to know you better and to love you more through Romans 1. And so we pray, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. All right. Well, back in 1974, that predates quite a number of you, um, I came to know the Lord through the high school ministry of Park Street Church in Boston. And I attended there regularly through college. And one summer, I worked there as a tour guide because it's a stop on the Freedom Trail in Boston. And I gave people tours of this great historic church and throughout the church often uh, tucked away in in obscure corners are a number of sort of random historical plaques and which like most older churches have lost meaning to most of the people who are attending there today but being the tour guide uh, i had to learn all the old and odd things that one can find in a large historic downtown city church and one of the odd things that I had to learn about was a bronze plaque bearing the inscription, Joseph S. Alzuski, SK-2C-USC, which according to my insight information from the Coast Guard is the abbreviation for Storekeeper Second Class E-5 United States Coast Guard. And then the second line of the plaque read, lost February 3rd, 1943, North Atlantic. And I had to learn about this because of a remarkable personal experience from one of uh, Park Street's former ministers, a man named Alan Emery. And it's very interesting because Alan Emery was a pastor there and Alan Emery Jr. was a pastor there and Alan Emery III was a pastor there over like 60-some years. Um, None of them stayed long. They were all there for a short period of time. But the first Alan Emery uh, wrote a book called The Turtle on a Fence Post, and he tells the story uh, of Joseph Olszewski in that book. See, the day after Pearl Harbor, Alan Emery, like thousands of others, enlisted, and his choice was the Coast Guard. He was immediately put to work in his hometown of Boston as a quartermaster, which means supply. And he was given duties on Friday nights to guard one of the wharfs uh, there in Boston. And uh, on one particular Friday, he'd wisely decided to get some sleep before duty, and he was in his bunk when one of his new friends, Joseph Alzuski, came by. and He was dressed in immaculate dress blues his hat squared, piping on his snow white cuffs, his shoes spit shine, and he gave his biggest smile and he asked uh, Alan Emery how he looked. And Emery said he looked great and asked what the big event was. And Joe excitedly explained that the previous night at the USO, a wealthy girl had invited him to spend the weekend at her apartment on Beacon Hill. That's the ritzy part of Boston. And that she had plenty of records and alcohol. Records were what we had before 8-tracks, which is what we had before cassettes, which is what we had before CDs, which is what we had before MP3s. Just to date myself. And he said he didn't have to be back until 0700 Monday morning. And he ended the story by saying, this is going to be the greatest time of my life. And Emery replied that he would be praying for him. And his friend walked out, but then immediately returned and said, what did you say? "So I said, I'd be praying for you, replied Emory. So why would you be praying for me? I'm going to have the first great weekend in my whole life. He said, because Joe, Monday morning, you'll be back aboard ship. And you will not be the same person you are tonight. Sin leaves its mark. Which Joe responded with by swearing at Allen Emory, and he went off for his weekend. And so Allen prayed for Joe as he prepared for guard duty, and he was startled a little later on when this unsmiling and clearly agitated Joe suddenly appeared in the floodlights of the guard post. And he yelled at him, how can you have a good time when someone's praying for you? <laughs> you ruined my weekend. I stood up my date, and I've been waiting until you came on duty. Now tell me about God. And that night, Joseph Alzuski heard for the very first time the promises of God, and he believed. And the change was immediate and dramatic. Uh, Joseph joined Park Street Church, spent his free time on the Boston Common, inviting other servicemen uh, to services. He prayed with his buddies. He grew in his knowledge, of the scriptures under the preaching ministry of Dr. Harold John Akinge, arguably the greatest pastor of the late 20th century. And then on February 1st, 1943, uh, Joseph Olszewski volunteered for sea duty on a minesweeper headed for Iceland. And a few days out, a torpedo found its mark. They lost all hands on deck. When I read stories like that, they tend to stun me. They have a way of clearing the fog away and allowing those things that are truly important to come into focus. And I'm reminded of the gospel's power to change lives and the need we often have to get back to what's really important. And to be honest, that's how Romans 1, particularly verses 16 and 17, which are the concluding verses of Paul's introduction to this wonderful book, they often hit me that way because this text, these words form the theme for the entire book of Romans. And like most uh, good writers, after making his words of introduction, Paul immediately states his theme. And this is it, verses 16 and 17. It's what the book of Romans is all about. It's the essence of Paul's theology. It's the heart of evangelical theology. This is the text that launched the Protestant Reformation and it most clearly explains the grace of God in the gospel. It is probably the clearest statement of the gospel in the New Testament and nowhere is God's plan of salvation made so plain as it is in the book of Romans. But before we get too deep, let's give some context here. As we turn to Romans 1, one of the things we do first is to look for the key words. And the key word gives us the theme of the book. And we don't have to look far to find it. It's immediately found in verse 1, which we read at the beginning of our prayer time. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. We drop down to verse 9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Finally, he comes to his theme in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek And verse 17 adds the explanation. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans is all about the gospel. The theme of the book is the gospel. Paul's writing about the gospel. The key word of Romans is the gospel. And so we get that right here uh, in the first 17 verses. The gospel's wrapped up in the historical truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Paul explains that in verses 1 through 4, which we already read. And then the gospel is good news because it has life-changing power. That statement comes from verse 16. And the gospel saves those who believe it because it reveals the righteousness of God. That comes from verse 17. Romans is all about the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ and the difference he can make when he comes into your life. In fact, the English word gospel comes from the Old English God spell, which means good tidings, or as we would say, good news. Romans is all about the gospel, God's good news. Therefore, because Paul is so confident in this good news, he feels the burden that comes with the obligation of the gospel. If you have the sermon outline, Uh, which we usually post Saturday night. You'll see that's the first blank there in the bulletin, the obligation of the gospel, starting in verses 14 and 15. He describes his sense of obligation here. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Look at what he says there. Look at verse 14. It says, I am under obligation. The New King James Version translates that I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, what's the debt? What's the obligation? It seems to be preaching the gospel. That's his obligation. The reason I think it's important to focus on that word obligation or debtor makes you think about how you get into a debt and how you get out of a debt. When you hear good news about how to escape from a common misery, you become a debtor to tell that good news to others so they can escape the misery too. And Paul is saying we owe it to them. If we've learned how to escape the misery, we owe it to others to tell them how to escape the misery. Why? Because if you withhold the good news of God's grace from others as if you're qualified for it and they're not, well, that just reveals that you don't really understand God's grace. The grace of God which calls us out of darkness and bestows covenant love on us creates what it commands. We don't qualify for it beforehand. So if you hold this grace back from others as if you're qualified and they're not, you're proving that you don't really know or understand grace. Grace is our only hope as sinners. We don't deserve it. No one can deserve it from us. And when it comes to us freely, we become obligated to give it to others freely It's one reason Paul stresses his debt in verse 14. He says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. See, culture and intelligence and education don't qualify you for the gospel of grace. Or being unrefined or uneducated or illiterate doesn't disqualify you from the gospel of grace. There's no qualifications for this grace. Paul's not a debtor to anybody because they qualify because nobody qualifies. Then grace wouldn't be grace. Paul's a debtor precisely because he didn't qualify, and yet grace came to him and keeps coming to him day after day in endless waves as God's grace breaks over his life. We need to be gripped by the reality of grace in our life and the difference it makes. Dwell on what it would mean when it comes to our pride, or our self-righteousness, or our relationships. Uh, marriage being demanding in marriage, and we need to open our hearts more and more to the <coughs> excuse me to the wonder of our salvation. Not because God found something special in us, but because this grace is utterly and absolutely free. It comes to us without any qualification from us now let's stop a moment and think about what i just did i just took the gospel of god's grace the good news that because of jesus death on the cross for sinners and his resurrection from the dead the free grace is given to us and i applied it to you With the conviction that if you get it, if you believe it, if you have faith in it, if you cherish this grace and you live uh, in, on, from, out of this grace, it's going to make a difference in your life. Particularly in areas like pride and self-righteousness and relationships and marriage. To put it in just a simple phrase, I just preach to you the gospel of grace. Why is that important? consider verse 15 and see if this is not what paul's trying to do in rome he says in verse 14 that he's a debtor to every layer of society and then he says so i'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in rome he's eager to preach the gospel to you also the church the believers in rome we don't usually think about preaching the gospel to believers We often think about preaching the gospel to unbelievers. But I just preach the gospel to you, most of whom, as far as I know, are believers. You see, our faith begins with the gospel of God's grace and our Christian lives are sustained by that same good news of grace over and over and over again. It's the gospel of grace that saves and it's the gospel of grace that sanctifies. So we must tell people the gospel the first time, but then we must tell people again and again of the meaning and implications of the gospel. And if you were here during Sunday school uh, earlier, then you heard Ron teaching from Ephesians 2 saying that when we stop preaching the gospel, we stop being a church. So the gospel of God's grace as is found in Jesus Christ is what we preach to unbelievers and the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ is what we preach to believers. And why do we do that? Because we have confidence in the power of the gospel. Verse 16, confidence in the power of the gospel. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, anyone who sat for a long time under the preaching of the word has probably heard that the Greek word translated power is dunamis, the word from which we get the English words dynamic and dynamo and dynamite. The gospel has incredible power. And Paul's not ashamed of this good news, because it's the dynamic power of God. Impossible for humans to bring under control or to direct. And this dynamic power of God brings salvation and all of its earthly and eternal benefits for everyone who believes. And that's why Paul felt no need to apologize for coming to Rome. He knew that in the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, there's power that can overcome uh, anything that the Romans could throw against it. And he says, I am not ashamed, and he's implying that we should not be ashamed. And Paul said this because he knows the human tendency to be embarrassed or to deny what we know to be true. Even though every true believer knows that it's a serious sin to be ashamed of our Savior and Lord, they also know the difficulty of avoiding that sin. If you think about it, we have opportunity to speak about Christ, but so often we don't. We know for a lot of people, the gospel is unattractive or it's intimidating. It could be repulsive to the natural unsaved person or to the ungodly spiritual system that dominates the world. Because The gospel exposes man's sin and wickedness and depravity and just our lostness. It declares people to be despicable and works righteousness to be worthless in God's sight. To the sinful heart of unbelievers, the gospel does not appear as good news, but bad. And when they first hear it, they often react with disdain against the one presenting it or throw out arguments and theories against it. And for that reason, our fear of uh, men, our fear of other people, and what they might say and our not being able to handle their arguments is the single greatest snare in sharing the gospel. The wonder of all this is that God's not ashamed of us. We Need this power. So, how does this power work? The Apostle Paul gives us three answers. First, he says the gospel has the power to save. Back in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. So, what does the gospel do? It saves sinners. What else saves sinners? Not science, not education, not good works not being positive or popular, not fame or fortune. The gospel, and only the gospel, saves sinners. Sometimes we see the word salvation, we only think in the past tense. But here Paul is thinking of salvation in all three tenses, past, present, and future. The gospel has the power to forgive sins, in the past, present, and future, impart new life. Past, present, and future, and admit into heaven in the past, present, and future. Paul is clear that salvation is not just a moment in time where you get your salvation card punched, and then sometime later you show up in heaven and show it to God and say, See, here it is. I got my salvation card punched. Let me in. Paul makes it clear that this is a process and a pilgrimage. You're saved once, you're saved now, and you're saved in the future. It's not you're just saved once in the past. It's an ongoing process. It's why most commonly New Testament writers refer to the Christian life as a walk. When you read in Ephesians, how's your walk? Walk worthy of what you have learned. Paul makes it clear that you have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. It's an entire life of spiritual growth. It's the reason we call it progressive sanctification. Now, Romans 5 makes it clear. It says, Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, past tense, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, present tense, by his blood, much more shall we be saved, future tense, by him from the wrath of God. The gospel saves you, past, present, and future. No other power on earth can do that. Second, the gospel has the power to save those who believe. Paul explains that the gospel saves believing sinners. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The word believe, It means to make a personal commitment to trust by an act of the will. It means the gospel always demands a personal response. It's never enough to just hear the gospel. Eventually you have to respond to it in one way or the other, either with belief or unbelief. And third, the gospel has the power to save without regard to human distinction. He says here, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This last phrase introduces the universal dimension of the gospel. The Jews are God's chosen people, and although most of the Jews said no to Jesus, the gospel still has the power to save them if they will only believe. And the Greeks are the Gentiles, all the non-Jews. And no wonder Paul's not ashamed. The gospel has the power to save people without regard to the distinctions that divide us. Is the power to save without regard to race, education, age, income, skin color, family background, religious preference, or moral failure. What an exhilarating word to those of us, perhaps here today, who feel that there's something about us that rules us out. We have the wrong family, the wrong background, the wrong education, the wrong language, the wrong race, the wrong culture, the wrong sexual preference, the wrong moral track record. And then to hear the words, everyone who believes. That's why Paul wasn't ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome. He knew it had the power to save anyone who would believe it. So the next logical question is, why is the gospel so powerful? Because it reveals the righteousness of God, verse 17. The righteousness of God. How does the power of the gospel bring salvation? This is one of the most important statements in scripture, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The key word here is righteousness means to have a right standing in God's eyes. It's a legal term taken from the courtrooms of the ancient world. It means to declare not guilty, innocent of all charges. The one who is righteous in God's eyes is the one who can stand before him and be declared not guilty. This is where the greatness of the gospel is clearly seen. It provides for us what we can never provide for ourselves, On our own merits, we all stand condemned before Almighty God. And if people were being truly honest, who would dare say, I'm good enough to go to heaven? As someone else once said, a clear conscience is often the result of a poor memory. The only people who think they're good enough to go to heaven are the people who don't know how bad they really are. Righteousness is what we need but don't have. So how is this good news that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? Well, the answer is that God demands righteousness and we don't have it. So the only hope for us is that God himself would give us the righteousness that he demands of us. That would be good news. That would be gospel. And that's what he does. What's revealed in the gospel is the righteousness of God for us that he demands from us. The reason the gospel is the power of God for salvation is because of how the gospel saves believers. The power of the gospel is that in it, God reveals the righteousness for us that God demands from us. Therefore, God knowing we could never be righteous on our own, has provided a righteousness for us that comes from heaven above. It's not earned, it's not deserved, but it's given to us by God as a free gift. What we had to have, but we couldn't create or supply or perform, God gives to us freely his own righteousness, the righteousness of God. And so the gospel first reveals That this righteousness of God is this radical, heavenly righteousness, far beyond our own ability. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And Romans 5.17 says, If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. One commentator said, the righteousness of God is a righteousness originating in God, prepared by God, revealed in the gospel, and therein offered to us. It is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness from heaven. It's not a human righteousness, but the righteousness of God. Second, The gospel is revealed through Christ who suffered in our place because our human righteousness is not good enough. Through the resurrection, he offers his righteousness to us, so we see God's righteousness in the gospel. But we understand this, verse 17 says, by faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, from faith for faith is sort of an intensified phrase that means entirely of faith. As the New Living Bible has it, this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. And then Paul concludes with a quotation from Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice the connection between the first part of verse 17 and the last part of verse 17, which is the quote from Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Uh, Both are correct. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So you have this Old Testament quote is introduced with as it is written. In other words, what he's just said about the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel is as is like what he's about to quote from the Old Testament, that the righteous shall live by faith. But it's really important you notice what happens to the word righteousness here in this verse. In the first half of the verse, the righteousness is God's. The righteousness of God is revealed. In the second half of the verse, the righteousness is man's. The righteous shall live by faith. How can Paul use an Old Testament quote to illustrate his point if there's such a big difference in the very words he wants to compare The answer is there's not a very big difference. This quote shows us that what Paul has in mind when he speaks of the gospel revealing the righteousness of God is not just that God himself is righteous, but that he imputes or credits his righteousness to man, to us, so that we can be called righteous. The righteous, he says, the one who is now righteous because of the gift of God's righteousness, shall live by faith. Understanding this makes an eternity of difference for those who see Christ. What we need day in and day out in order to make our way to heaven is to see and receive and feed on this gift of imputed righteousness. This is the way God saves everyone who believes. Now think about it. Let me simplify it. Children can grasp this. Let me say it as simply as I can. We all do bad things, and we are all bad in the sense that the bad we do comes from a deeply rooted badness. Our bad deeds come out of a bad heart. But God says that we need to be good, or he can't accept us, because his goodness would be ruined by our badness. So what we need is for God to take our badness which he does and punishes. (coughs) Excuse me. He takes our badness and he puts it on Jesus. We see that at the cross in the death of Jesus. He takes our badness. But then God takes the goodness of Jesus, his own goodness, and gives it to us and makes it ours. And that's what he did, so that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the gift of God's goodness, God's righteousness. Technically, we call that justification by faith. But Jesus takes our bad, and we get his good. That's as simply as I can put it. Now, when Martin Luther was searching for God, For a long time he thought the righteousness of god was a condemning statement it was a condemning righteousness because when you see the righteousness of god as god's standard of judgment it just drove him to despair he couldn't meet that standard he tried he tried to do all the good that he could and he couldn't get there but little by little he began to understand And then finally a day came when he realized that God gives us his own righteousness to make us righteous. And we get that by faith. Romans 3.22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And when he finally understood that, his life turned upside down. There is a letter in a library in uh, Rudolstadt. Germany. There's a glass case, and it holds a letter written by Martin Luther's youngest son, Dr. Paul Luther. And the letter reads, in the year 1544, my dearest father in the presence of us all narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come to the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way, as he repeated his prayers on the ladder and staircase, big staircase in Rome, the words of the prophet came suddenly to his mind, the righteous shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Think of how the righteousness revealed in Christ motivated Paul. It's possible for men and women to stand sinless before God. It's possible to know that one has eternal life. It's possible to be free from trying to earn righteousness and work your way into heaven. The sole requirement is faith. This is the good news. It's the best news ever proclaimed. But it also necessitates knowing something else. It necessitates knowing that God doesn't make deals. Then God doesn't make deals. In his commentary on Romans 1, Donald Gray uh, Barnhouse, sort of post-World War II era, uh, was at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he writes how unfair it would be if God set a condition for entrance into heaven that could only be met by a small part of the human race. He said, if God demanded a certain degree of intelligence, it would be unfair to morons. That's what he wrote. If he demanded wealth, it would be unfair to paupers. Now that might be encouraging to some of you, but wait till you hear the rest. God demands perfection, and he won't accept anything less. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to be perfect if you think about it, you soon realize that that rules out everyone, the entire human race. So let's suppose that God demands 100% perfection. Now, a convict might have fulfilled 20% of what God demands, while an ordinary, law-abiding, average citizen might fulfill uh, 50%. And who knows, there's some extraordinary person who's been perfect 80% of the time. But no man who's ever lived has achieved 100%. And our problem is we tend to look at what we've already done and say, God, I've provided 20%, but I need you to provide the other 80%. Or, Lord, let's go halves. I'll put in 50%, and you put in 50%. Or that guy who thinks he's especially good, is Lord, you see, I've done 80%. I won't trouble you for more than the extra 20% I need to get into heaven. But it doesn't work that way. The convict has to learn to curse his 20% of human righteousness, abandon all hope of salvation by means of it, and come to the cross of Christ to receive 100% of a totally different righteousness provided by the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of his atoning death for sinners. And goes out, uh, goes on to point out that the 80% guy, his job is much harder because he has to curse his 80% righteousness to call it nothing but filthy rags in God's sight and to come to the Lord Jesus to receive the 100% righteousness that only comes from God. God doesn't make deals. It's his righteousness or no righteousness. And his righteousness only comes through the gospel, by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.9 says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that's why Paul is so motivated by his confidence in the gospel. He confidently proclaims, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, I'm guessing some of us have never understood what it means to have the righteousness of God. Unlike Joseph Olszewski, perhaps some of us have never known what it means to be free from our sins, to be righteous before God, to have Christ in our life. For some of us, the Bible has never been alive. Some of us have never really experienced the joy of being encouraged in the faith. And Christ can change all of that. You know, we talked about in Sunday School, the gospel and being a lampstand and being witnesses to Christ and, and sharing the gospel. And all of that's true, but it, it means we don't have to tell people about Potomac Hills. We don't have to tell people about our uh, Sunday School or our music program. We have to be talking about Jesus and how Jesus came to earth, was found in a manger, grew up in a Jewish family, knew and loved God, and then when he came into a crowd, he made everybody there feel special. Nobody felt like an outsider. Nobody felt like they weren't allowed to be there. Nobody looked down at their clothes and thought, boy, I shouldn't be here today. Jesus would come into a crowd and everybody would feel welcome, and he spread that Love and acceptance throughout the world in which he lived. And ultimately, he was nailed to a cross because of that love and kindness. And he was crucified because he loved too much. And he died because you and I are sinners. So, when you leave here today and you go home or you go get something to eat or you go to a community group or wherever, do us a favor. Don't talk about the sermon. Talk about what the sermon said about Jesus. Don't talk about the music. Talk about what the music said about Jesus. Don't talk about the Sunday school class. Talk about what the Sunday school class taught you about Jesus. Don't talk about yourself. Talk about your relationship with Jesus. Don't talk about somebody else. Talk about their need for Jesus or their love for Jesus or what you learned about Jesus by being with them. If we left here every Sunday talking about Jesus, our world would be changed. And we should be able to talk about Jesus. And we should be able to say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is a matter of faith, faith in the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It is the power of God for everyone who believes. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do you believe? And all who do said, amen, amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul. We're people who need to respond to your gracious invitation to hear the Gospel. We're people who need to know that we can't be good enough on our own. We're people who need to come to you in repentance because our righteousness is anything but. And yet, despite our lack of righteousness, your word comes to us with the gospel of God's grace. So Lord, help us to come to you, to believe your promise that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Help us to share it with others and preach it to ourselves regularly. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Help us to have real confidence in the gospel in the midst of this chaotic year. For we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.